Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to For the Long Run, the podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. I've been running for a few years now and have the privilege of meeting many incredible runners on my travels all across the country. This podcast is intended to share those amazing conversations. This week's guest is Chris Mako. Chris is a trail runner, ultra marathoner, and long distance specialist currently training for the Western States 100 miler at the end of June. We talked about what excites him about the 100 mile distance as he feels he's figured out the road marathon, but still is pretty uncertain about the hundreds which he finds to be a fun challenge to try and figure out. We talked about Mako's experience as a full-time athlete as he's quit his job twice now. He talked about balance as well as his YouTube channel and general social media presence. Chris opened up a bit about vulnerability and the shared struggle of things not going well all the time, as well as what scares him. Chris runs for Nike and hopefully one day Kodiak Cakes. Enjoy! Welcome back. I am here in Boulder, Colorado with Chris Mako. Uh, so Chris, thanks for uh, thanks for joining in today. Yeah, I'm loving the business center office. Pretty sweet digs here in the Millennium Hotel. Yeah, it's uh, it's not bad. They uh, they they hooked it up here. Um, just kidding. Um, yeah, it's the fun thing about business rooms in hotels that you know it's 2019, so nobody uses them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty a pretty reliable spot I for. Think there's for Windows Windows 95 operating on these computers. Yeah, and you have. Just- it's like a um, it's like an arcade game, and you have to put in one, five, ten, or twenty dollars to get to get internet time. We're just trying to set the mood for all of our listeners. We're, yes, we're sitting intimately inside of a business center that you have to pay by minute in order to use with cash, not card. And uh, oh, they take card. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I mean this isn't like nineteen twenty. And fortunately, it is not rush hour. 1 p.m. on a weekday is typically not rush hour for a hotel. But I believe you were looking for an introduction for me of who I am. Yes, who is Chris Mako and why is he sitting in his business room? We kind of jumped in here. My name is Chris Mako. I reside in Boulder, Colorado, hence the interview today in Boulder. And I'm a 33-year-old trail runner, ultramarathoner, long-distance specialist. I run for Nike. And I am currently training for the Western States Endurance Run, 100-miler at the end of June. And is your big goal at Western States still the 9 p.m. Applebee's uh, dinner? I, despite several efforts to get a sponsorship with Applebee's, it did not go as planned. They did offer a discount once, I think, and they also have like dollar margaritas. So it's, a pretty, sometimes it's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty good deal. Regardless, it's hard to get much discounted. The margins are probably pretty thin as is. Um, so you know, I think if I have a good race and finish at that time, which I believe means sub sixteen hours, which would be pretty stout, especially if it's going to be a snow year, I'll probably treat myself to something a little bit nicer than that. Cool. 
Well, let's dive right into it. So 100 miles, what do you like about that distance? Ah, what do I like about 100 miles? I actually just wrote this down this morning, not preparing for this, <laughs> a separate question. I believe at this point in my career, I've probably run over 20, close to 30 marathon, road marathons. And I think at this point, I've figured out the training I need to do and how to mentally get through the race itself. The last four or five marathons have gone incredibly well. I think I've... You've won a few of them? I've won all of them. I mean, they're not Boston marathons, but, you know, the Cheyenne Marathon is right behind Boston <laughs> when it comes to prestige. It's like one and one A. Yeah. But uh, I think I figured out how to, to mentally attack that race. So how, how do you do that? I train hard. Getting get, get uncomfortable. I put in the mileage. I put in some very hard workouts. And I know what those workouts should be. It should be long tempo runs. It should be faster, higher intensity intervals. And I've done that by myself. I've done that with the help of several different coaches. And typically, I think the accountability and the structure that a coach can provide has allowed me to be more successful. But at the end of the day, you show up to the race and you need to stare all the other competitors on the line down and know that it's going to hurt for everyone and you need to just gut it out and hope you come out on top. And I've been very blessed that I have gotten through the low points in the race. I think with a marathon, you don't expect to hurt until you get to like mile 15. And I found every single time there's a pivotal moment at mile three, at six, at nine, at 14 and you have to win all those battles because especially that early in the race you're not actually tired it's just your head telling you oh my gosh i have so much more to go did you break it up no i i, I just anticipate that those moments are going to come and do whatever it takes to get me through those i think the the best tactic that I've tricked myself with is just convincing myself to get to the next aid station or the next mile mark instead of worrying about the finish. So at mile 16, I might feel like I'm dead, but then I just tell myself, okay, get to mile 18. This will be a great long run, if anything else, and then we'll reevaluate there. And then at a certain point, kind of instincts kick in, you start smelling that finish line and, and I kind of switch gears. And as soon as I get to that point, then I, then I know I'm good for the rest of the day. Cool. So that's a marathon, but yes. what do you like about the, the hundred? Yeah. So marathon, feel like I figured that one out. I think I can still run a little bit faster, but uh, I need to have the right training and then find the correct race in order to do that. Unfortunately, road marathons don't pay the bills for me. I am a trail marathon specialist. I'm very well aware that my marathon times while, pretty good are certainly not elite level and the exciting thing about these longer distances is that there's an opportunity to be one of the best and i don't know if that's because not enough people have discovered it yet or i have skills that allow me to perform better at those things but i i found that anything on trails is not only more interesting from a training perspective just getting off of roads and on trails where you just lose track of time but the races themselves I feel like there's an opportunity to be competitive at a global level. Have I gotten there yet? I don't think so. And that's part of the fun of it. I know I have a lot of work to do and I have weaknesses. And as much as I hate hills, I got to focus on climbing and getting invert. I'm still a roadrunner at heart. So I chase the miles 
and try to go for miles i'm like well it's faster to go flat than it is to go up a mountain but it's really important to get in those miles and especially when there's snow out there i and mud i tend to avoid anything on the trails but i just need to man up toughen up a little bit and get out there but with the hundred miler i just have yet to figure it out and i had one pretty successful go at it in my debut and that's probably out of just blind luck and being a little ignorant of the distance and what it would take. But the next two have not gone super well. I had to drop out of one. I had to walk the last 35 miles at Western States. And then there were two or three other races that I didn't even start. I withdrew before I even got to the starting line. So not only is it about figuring out during the race, but also figuring out my training leading up to it and not getting overwhelmed by the... this fear of having to race a hundred miler at some point. So how do you, how do you manage the training in a place like Boulder where like there's something epic to do every day? And how do you, how do you balance structure and training with a long-term focus? I would not recommend my training approach for most individuals. (laughs) Uh, Right now I am very tired and I've, intentionally knowing myself and knowing that at the level that I like to train at, I was very intentional about the way I was going to approach this training block. I've found time and time again that I'm typically, if the typical training program is 12 weeks long around week eight, I'm probably the fittest and I have my best race then. And then the last month it kind of falls apart and it has nothing to do with the taper, but much more to do with just the time focused on one training block. And so for this training, I raced a key marathon at the end of March. One approach could have been to jump immediately into trails. I actually was signed up for 250 milers in April. I kind of did a double take on whether that made sense. Step back for a moment, realized maybe not the smartest approach. Shied away from any workouts, shied away from high mileage, really allowed my body to recover and regroup. Probably put on a little more weight than I would have wanted in the, in a very brief off season, um, but I needed that reset. And now I'm just starting to build back up, and have had a couple of really quality weeks. Last week I ran about 150 miles. This week, probably somewhere in the 130 to 140 range. I'll have one more high intensity week, and then I'll start to to taper down a little bit. And will it work? I don't know. I did similarly high intense volume leading up to the Western States in 2017. I maybe had too many races close to right before the race, had a couple life events get in the way, but uh, all of those stresses combined, I didn't really taper, but I just kind of fell apart in the last month. And while I was still incredibly fit when I got to the start line, I just didn't have the confidence that I'm hoping I will have at this point. Right now, if I had to race Western States, I'd be very scared because I know I'm not at 100% yet. I'm not at 90%. I just did a workout this morning that two months ago would have been easy for me. I got dropped in the first 30 seconds. I didn't even make it a minute with a buddy of mine. So it's it's a little tough. But he tough. was on a bike, right? Yeah, yeah. He was, in a, he was on a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, so it's a little tough to to be at a place we're four and a half weeks away from race day and not feel like I'm ready to go, but I'm not rushing it. I know that every week has gone better than the previous. And I know that if I can stay patient and remain confident that I'm heading in the right direction, that good things will happen on race day. And I might not be sharp 
and write it 100%, but I think many other people have mentioned this on other podcast articles. Being at 90% and feeling like you're heading to 95 is a lot better than being at 95 and heading to 90. So that momentum, I think, is going to be the most important. Cool. Well, we had tens of millions of people write in with questions, so let's awesome. let's, let's get to those. Um, how, how has your approach changed as you navigate between having a full-time job and being a full-time athlete? Um, I think a lot of people are, are curious about um, how you've managed that and, and what you're, what you're able to do now versus what you were, what you were doing when you had, you know, more obligations in the day. Yeah. Full-time employment and running can work very well together. It provides a lot of structure. And if you are disciplined, there's an opportunity to execute really well. I don't think it's feasible to get anywhere close to the volume that I'm doing. And another hard element is that you're kind of stuck running on the edges of the day during the winter. It's almost certainly going to be dark during the summer. Sometimes hard to get out for that like 6 p.m. run when it's still 80 degrees out and you've been snacking on M&Ms and who knows what else fancy stuff you have at, at your office. Um, so with the right discipline, it can it can be accomplished. I feel like running 140 miles without a job and running even 100 with a job is almost equal stress levels if the job almost probably more because I do have time to rest. I nap often. And when I do get into a hole and I miss a couple of days of sleep, we mentioned had a crazy baptism this weekend, <laughs> headed down to Los Angeles for my godson's baptism. And yeah, obviously don't get a lot of sleep during a baptism <laughs> weekend. And, it sounds uh, crazy. Yeah, it was a, a wild time in Malibu. But uh, if I had to return to a job, I almost certainly would have had to take one, if not two days off from running just to get a little extra sleep. But I was able to sleep in get in my run still. And, and that's just an advantage that you can have when, when you're not working full time. I feel like the stress management component of it is just a lot easier to manage when you have all day. That being said, you're sitting around idle. It's easy to make bad decisions. Uh, you're close to a kitchen. It's easy to grab a second lunch, but I'm also uh, in the same regards when you're at an office, especially one with, that caters food, you have like very massive meals <laughs> And it's like, do I really need like prime rib at lunch today? Like it's probably not what is going to sit a little heavy in for yeah. the second round. Yeah. So I think having more control over your day and schedule is, is, can be an advantage, but you need to be equally disciplined to actually get the stuff done, wake up and, and knock out your runs. Because if, if you wait till noon to your first run of the day, there might not be time for, for a second run. And as, as easy as it sounds to wake up and be like, oh, well then you'll have all day to sleep and drink coffee and do all that. It's pretty tough to will yourself out of the bed when you really don't have that much going on during the day. A 1 p.m. podcast gives you a, a lot of time to, to procrastinate in the morning. For sure. What was it like making the jump from, from full-time to supporting yourself through running? Well, this is my second go at it. It's round two. I attempted it's it. It's not your first rodeo, as they say. Not my first rodeo. My first attempt was in 2017. It lasted about six months basically leading up to Western States and then a month or two of just finding myself in the woods of Marin, a lot of walking and solo time. And I, the race was very disappointing. That certainly didn't help. But the, the big thing for me was that 
I was a hundred percent committed to running and that training was my primary focus. And when you're running twice a day, every day for two to three hours and you have stretching and core and everything else, your days go by pretty quickly. But as soon as that high intensity working out is eliminated, you suddenly have a ton of free time. You're like, what am I supposed to be doing with my day? And that happened after Western States had a lot of doubts about what I was doing and if this was the right path for me and if I was utilizing my skill set to the best of my abilities. Decided to move to Boulder, get another job. That lasted only a year because I had tasted the good life and had realized how great it was to be able to train full time. And now I'm in the second go of it. And I think main difference is I've tried to add more structure. So I'm a little bit better about getting out and getting my first run out of the way because I'm always more clear-minded and focused and efficient with my time once I've gotten one run out of the way. And I've also tried to diversify a little bit. Now, almost everything else I'm doing is related to running, but I am spending a little bit of time with my YouTube channel, The Mako Show, youtube.com slash The Mako Show. I spend a little bit of time coaching and really investing a good amount of time with just a handful of athletes and then a couple of side projects as well and and keeping myself busy with things that stimulate me and also make me feel like I've accomplished something that during the day makes a big difference finishing your runs is awesome feeling but feeling like you filled in the rest of the hours with something productive and not just watching Netflix which I can't do because I'm afraid of what will happen if I if I pay for a Netflix subscription uh, certainly brings a lot more, um, roundness to life. Definitely. Let's talk about the YouTube channel and, and your social media presence. Um, you're, it seems like you're very intentional with, with how you communicate with your audience. Um, what's, what's your goal on, on social media or, or what's your, what's your, let's start with the, with the YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to, I'm I'm sure you have, you know, tons of listeners but or or viewers, but um maybe let's let's uh let's share with this audience um a little bit more about the the channel. Yeah, the YouTube channel became started as an experiment in 2017. I was challenged to write down every single hour of the day kind of diary style for a week period to be posted on a website. It was like, follow an elite athlete, Mm -hmm. see what they're doing. And I decided to accompany that blog with some videos for the week. Didn't put very much effort into editing or quality of video (laughs) content. Got a lot of grief for not filming in landscape mode and all these like YouTube 101 stuff that everyone knows. Everyone in the vlogosphere knows. And I didn't really know what to make of it, but I saw that I got to about a thousand views per video. That was pretty cool. Obviously, a huge percentage of that was coming from friends and family who followed me on other social platforms and were just being nice because I was blasting these (laughs) links all over the place. Hey, mom, read this. Watch this. Yeah, so most of the views are still my mom and dad. But I've found over time that I've been able to connect with a community of runners, a very niche community of runners who are equally geeked out on the sport and love it. And it's a really amazing opportunity to share updates and connect with them. And people talk about brand and 
building a presence online so that you can then sell products, but it's not about that. It's about presenting an authentic, mostly authentic version of myself, sometimes a little bit more hyped up and extroverted than I am typically. But the hope is just to be able to share a little bit of my journey and the struggles. It's so I think YouTube is an easier channel to share ups and downs than, you know, Instagram. Nobody wants to see an ugly Instagram photo and then people complain, oh, nobody ever complains, never shares bad updates on Instagram. It's like, yeah. Nobody, nobody sees wants, them. <laughs> nobody wants to see cloudy flat irons where you can't actually see the flat yeah. irons. And YouTube, I think you can share in more detail. You, know, you have a conversation with folks. People can leave comments. And it's been a great opportunity. So now where I show up, show up to races, people are shouting C money all over the place. And uh, C money is just a random name I started calling myself because <laughs> Talking in third person is a very bizarre thing that you do when you're uncomfortably filming yourself. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go by this fake moniker. And <laughs> it's caught on. And now people are sh shouting it at races. And it's very cool because Western States 2016, I thought I was a pretty good runner. But there was not a single person cheering for me. And I specifically remember running by this section where SFRC, San Francisco Running Company, had put up some signs. And I was a San Francisco runner. And I was so bummed that there wasn't a sign for me. And for good reason, I probably, I don't think I ever actually started a run from their store. So I can't be blamed too much for that. But it's very awesome that while I wasn't able to connect with my community, that was literally you know, a quarter mile from my door for six months. I was able to connect. I am able to connect with this this bigger audience. And uh, sure, it probably has some value to brands as well, but that's certainly not the intent. And all of the goals that I have associated with growing that audience and and viewership is is all personal drive to to just see how big we can get it. I, I think the hardest thing for any YouTube channel is you spend a lot of time on these videos and you spend a lot of time on these podcasts. And until you hit some inflection point the amount of views and the audience you're reaching isn't that large and it has to be organic i think unless you do something crazy viral and uh, yeah i'm not planning to to go stre streaking or do do one of these horrible things that some of these youtube stars have done uh to get attention and as a result i'm gonna probably be on the slow path for a bit and it's a grind i i talk about pancakes all the time and i have a fondness for kodiak cakes and i was listening to a talk the CEO was giving about a couple months ago. And I did not realize that he has been working on the Kodiak Cakes brand for 23 years. And when you think about the recent success, it's like, oh, it was a no brainer that they were going to get here. But clearly there was a lot of time invested before it went big. And similarly, I, I can't be frustrated when I'm like, oh man, I only grew 2% this month when I wanted to grow 10%. And why aren't subscribers higher? And I, I, I know that, you know, consistency and continuing to put out content, which I've failed to do time and time <laughs> again, is really the, the best way to do that. But if it doesn't grow, I know that I've already connected with a, with a great set of folks and having their support and love is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. And I think that's a good, um, comparison to, to fitness also, like you're not insanely fit a month in, in a month. You don't get insanely fit in a month. You have to lay the bricks. You have to lay the groundwork. And over time, things happen. And I think that um, a lot of people are chasing these short-term uh, achievements that are totally unrealistic. It's great to set lofty goals, but you have to be somewhat realistic with them, right? 
Yeah. And it's very tough to get started because those first couple of weeks are going to be pretty miserable and they're <laughs> going to hurt and you're going to feel sluggish because most people have felt what it's like to be in great fitness and getting back to that point and then exceeding that previous best fitness is not easy and it can take a lot of time. And if you're not patient and putting in the work week after week, you're not going to get there. And that's something that I struggle with all the time because I just want instant gratification. Like, okay, I decided to start training. I should be killing <laughs> super, my next super workout. Fit, yeah. And I'm running 120 mile weeks, more than that. And it's been a month of that. And I'm still not anywhere close to where I want to be. And some could say, oh, that's because you're running too much. And that might be it. And hopefully once I start tapering a little bit, I'll start feeling great. But, you know, I'm in these workouts, I'm struggling, I'm getting dropped, but at least I've gotten to a point where I'm okay with that. And I'm at least putting myself in a position to take chances, yeah, to do the workout, yeah, because not doing the workout is you're never going to get better if you just shy away from workouts. And on the other hand, I think if you feel good in training all the time, like you're missing out, you're missing potential adaptation if you're if you're crushing everything totally agree i you can compare you might have a staple workout that you do frequently and it's really easy to compare times from one workout to the next and it's a terrible approach because you don't know what other factors were in play and even if you're comparing against another athlete you could do the same five mile tempo on the same exact loop but they could be coming off of three days of rest and you could be coming off of a race week and a hard long run and all of those other factors or you broke up with your girlfriend the, the night before and all these other factors rarely get accounted for in the workout it's not on strava like you can say oh yeah i had three straight bad nights of sleep and relationship issues and you can't include all those other that's what factors. twitter's for yeah yeah um what is it about western states that that has you continue to come back it was the First interest of mine in trail running. I, in 2015, went through a couple months of just getting really invested in ultra running podcasts. There weren't very many at the time, so it was a little bit easier than today, where it's a slightly more saturated, saturated market. market. Yeah. Uh, but everybody's got a podcast these days. Everyone does. But I saw a couple of my peers in the San Francisco area who had found success. And who were those, uh, who were those athletes? Um, Alex Varner. I don't know if I knew Jorge that well at the time, or I was, I think I knew Jorge Maravilla quite well, Brett Rivers, um, just a lot of the local runners mm -hmm. who also competed in the local cross country scene, the local road scene where I was competing. And I typically fared fairly well against them. Varner and I, I feel like had a pretty good record, although I think it was about 50, 50 wins, wins, losses, but I saw how well he was doing. I was like, maybe I can do this and naively assumed that whatever you can do on the roads translates directly to trails. And it took a lot of struggling before I kind of figured it out. But uh, I had been listening to these podcasts. It sounded like Western States was the big deal. And I wanted to focus on that. So all of my goal for 2016 was trying to qualify for that one race. And fortunately, mostly to do with the help of uh, David Roach, who took me under his wing after I uh, barely outkicked his wife at a <laughs> way too cool 50K. And I realized, well, first, okay, there's nothing bad about losing to a chick in ultras because they're pretty it happens, damn good. Yeah. It happens, <laughs> it happens a lot. Often. 
Um, so every time I finish F1, I'm, I'm very thrilled. But uh, <laughs> yeah, David kind of showed me what was required to be good at trail running and how important it was to not necessarily translate over your marathon training because it is a completely different beast. And ever since that first experience, I, at Western States, I had so many highs and lows during the race and fortunately ended with a high that I was excited to see how I could improve, but also um, the sadistic part of me wanted to just go through those low points again and, and suffer. And uh, yeah, so 2017 tried it again, unfortunately did not requalify in 2018. And so this is kind of my third attempt and I'm going to keep on trying until I feel like I really knocked it out of the park. And I don't think that necessarily means winning the race. Obviously that'd be a nice way to, to end a go at a specific race. But I think I will know at the start of the race that I've prepared as well as I could. And I'll know by the end if I kind of gave it my all. And again, even doing that, it'll be hard to walk away, but it's certainly the most meaningful race of any. And, uh, it's a really awesome opportunity to run against the best athletes in the U S as well as a couple international folks. And I still feel like it's the, the super bowl of our sport. I think some pundits would say Mont Blanc might be taking over the reins, but, uh, Western States certainly caters a little bit more to my road background. Although I'm going to, I want to set the record straight. People say how runnable, and flat western states is i don't 17,000 feet is still no joke and I, I realize everyone seems to be chasing the most possible vert in a race but compared to the boston marathon which has about i don't know 500 feet of climbing yep. maybe less yeah <laughs> it's pretty significant so i i don't want people to get the wrong impression who may be new to the the ultra scene but uh, it's still a pretty uh fantastic accomplishment and it's and it's hot that's the other variable that's yeah. and cold it's hot cold snow we're gonna have everything this year and uh that's exciting cool what are you thinking about on the start line man i need to pee <laughs> you ever peed peed yourself during a race absolutely but uh at the start of a race the last 10 minutes, I'll probably go to the bathroom three times because I'm just like, I need to get every single ounce out. I'm, you're also like extremely hydrated, generally have coffee flowing through your system. So that's helping uh, move things along and the nerves, that's a combination of everything. So um, that's typically the, the first thing on my mind. <laughs> then the second thing is, are my laces tight enough? I generally retie them multiple times. So I don't even bother like double knotting when I tie them the first time. <laughs> And then you usually have a moment of peace during the national anthem or what have you, where um, you're just relieved that it's about to start. Because as soon as the gun goes off, all of that kind of goes to the back burner and you're now focused on climbing a two, 3,000 foot climb to, <laughs> to start miles. the race. Yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, I think the biggest relief is hearing the gun or shotgun or whatever is at the start because you can't do anything more at that point. And kind of the first time that you wake up during the race, you're at mile 30 and you're like, okay, that's already a marathon. That's a pretty good start. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun journey and it's kind of intimidating just to think about how long it's going to be. <laughs> Have you spectated Western States? Uh, I'd consider 2017 and uh, spectator, <laughs> spectator year. I came through Forest Hill in really good shape. 
think I had just moved into fourth place. Forest Hill is the 100K. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, 62 miles and took off from there. It's the hottest part of the day. But at that point, you've gone through most of the bad climbs. You're heading downhill towards the river, about to cool off there. And within two miles, something snapped and I couldn't run anymore. And I, to this day, I don't know what exactly happened, but I had to walk the last 35 miles. A lot of doubt, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of attempts to drop out. But um, yeah, a lot, good opportunity to spectate. I got to see the women's race. I got to see the, the battle for the men's top 10. So uh, before it went dark on me. So if anything, the lesson learned is be prepared for everything. And like I didn't have a headlamp with me, which ended up almost being dangerous. Uh, but yeah, I think some of these races are right when they have these compulsory lists uh, mandatory gear that you need to bring along because you really don't know what's going to happen out there. And I don't think states, you're not likely to run into a, a massive thunderstorm on top of a mountain, but um, certainly anything can happen within a 10 mile stretch. And uh, I experienced that for sure. Do you plan for those negative variables? Like, do you have a, like, if this happens, then I will do this. Or do you sort of deal with it as it, as it comes? Yeah. Because can... I know a lot of people think about the worst things that can happen and so that when they happen you know what to do is that is that your approach or is it sort of like a let's see how the cards unfold i give my crew a pretty standard list of uh, what to have available to me at each aid station and what i'm expecting to use and i hope that that list is large enough that we can kind of change on the fly, pull an audible, do what we need to based on what is required. So, you know, you don't often think, oh, I'll need an extra pair of shoes or I'll want to change shoes at a certain point. And just having the shoes available so you have that flexibility is nice if you kind of forget to do that. You know, it's an extra thing that your crew needs to yeah. haul, but having it available is nice. But it's it's very tough to anticipate what's going to happen out there. And it, even if you think you have everything accounted for, like, I guess this is something that's common enough that maybe I should have a plan for, but what happens if I find a bear in the middle of the course? Like what am I supposed to do at that point? Or what happens if I see my teammate on the side of the course? Do I stop and help him out? Do I go to get help? Do I keep running my own race? Like what do you do in those scenarios? And, and I hope that I have enough experience that I'll have the clarity to not panic and make the right decision. And I think that's probably the most important thing I remember the first time I did a trail race every single aid station I was racing out of and trying to catch up to the guy who had been more efficient or had a vest on hydration vest so he didn't need to refuel and I was so stressed about maintaining my position and staying competitive and that's just not the way I approach it and it's because I'm patient and it's because I know that the race isn't one in in tens of seconds it's one in minutes and those minutes come from correctly pacing running within yourself don't not allowing your heart rate to spike and that just means consistent patient running i the same race two years later i fell at about mile 15 completely tore up my knees scraped my hands ripped off my bib and i was in a very low negative state and i could have either given up at that point done something crazy to try to catch up to the guys who i was running with but instead i kind of threw out a couple F-bombs, which needed to happen, and and kept going at, at my pace, knowing that 
it would take a couple miles to regroup, but I would get there. Cool. So you mentioned uh, teammates, and you run for Nike Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been with them for a couple of years. What's what's the what's the relationship you have with both the teammates and and Nike Trail um, in terms of their growth in the sport and and um, how do you feel as as a sponsored athlete in terms of like I must do this for the sponsor and you know, things like that. Well, first I want to commend myself that I haven't fidgeted more. I usually have to tap something, so I think you're not getting a ton of background noise, so I feel pretty proud of that. <laughs> There's an app for that anyways. That's a good way to deflect the question. Next question. Um, I am incredibly grateful for being sponsored. I do not think I anticipated when I left college that I would wait 10 years before I signed my first pro contract with Nike of all companies. So the thrill of signing a contract has has not gone away. And that is incredibly exciting, but it's also a little scary because I do feel like there's some expectations placed on me, not necessarily by Nike themselves, but by wearing that jersey. So similar to running in a Stanford jersey at a meet, you feel this pressure to perform and uh, you see a guy from a small D3 school running up on you and you know he just wants to outkick that Stanford guy and there's pressure to hold up the, the honor and respect that the that team has deserved and when you're running in a kit you see a pro at the start line you're expecting them to do something magical and i've run a lot of races that haven't been magical and part of me has to be okay with that and if i was afraid to show up to any race then i'm never going to improve and get through the low points and if anything it it gives me an opportunity to really relish the good moments because I've had races that I've struggled at and people have seen that and shown vulnerability. So I, when you see an athlete who always wins and has a perfect ultra sign up ranking and uh, never seems to have any issues, it's hard to empathize with them and, and even believe that that's possible. But when you see somebody who goes from winning big races, finishing top 10 at Western States, and then finishing 15th at Sean O'Brien, three hours behind Courtney DeWalter and and struggling and running hours off of personal bests and dropping out of Javelina. I think it makes the athlete more approachable. It also makes it tough for these brands because they're like, how are we going to market this angle? He's an out of shape runner. So, um, <laughs> But I think that's the, I think that's the point, the part that makes it more accessible for uh, an amateur and I think that's the part that brings value, brings additional value compared to a runner that just wins everything. I think 10 years ago, you could be an athlete that wins everything and, and you're more valuable because you win everything. I think in today's day and age, if you win something sometime at some point, but you're personable and you're you're engaging with the community, I'd rather follow athlete two over the athlete that wins everything, you know, not 10 times out of 10. Yeah, I'd hope so too. Um, And I I think it gives me a different perspective on racing where I rarely have that much pressure on myself, but I also run a much more conservative race than a lot of my peers. And I've gotten some flack for that, but I also believe that it is the best approach that I can do at these races. Part of it is mental, where if I go out hard from the gun, it's really hard for me to grasp 
being in this much pain for that long of a period of time, which is something that I have figured out in marathon. So I'm not sure why that hasn't translated yet. But the other thing is there's just an amazing amount of momentum you get from passing other runners and chasing runners down. And I also just feel like it's a smart way to run. If you look at most ultra races, the athlete who can run as evenly as possible or even negative split is typically the athlete who's going to win. And I certainly don't negative split many races, but keeping that second half pace as close as possible to the first half can make a monumental difference. If you go from running eight minute pace to nine minute pace versus eight, seven thirty to ten thirty, like you're making up a ton more time in that second half. And it's really hard to hear that the guy that you want to beat is 15 minutes ahead of you, 10 miles into a race, <laughs> but you have to employ that patience and really run within yourself and have confidence that either they're going to have a really good day and you don't have a chance to beat them or you're going to work into the race and get to where you want to be by the end. Cool. Uh, what, what scares you? Whether it's running or, or um, just in life. I, I find that answer fast or that question fascinating for someone like yourself who, who does these things that like most people can't do or won't do. The scariest thing for me right now is not Western States, the race itself. It's not having a similar blow up as last time. The scariest thing is showing up to the race, not feeling prepared. And there have been many races in the past where I have felt un- underprepared some of them I've chosen to run. Some of them I've chosen to, to eat the travel costs, the you know $200 that United charges so that <laughs> you can change your flight, which makes no sense when the flight's often less than that. And I've eaten those costs and felt a lot better for not having to suffer through a race where I'm, where I'm underprepared. But Western States is an important enough race to me that I'm going to run it regardless. And you can't fake your way through a hundred miler. So the idea of showing up and not feeling confident is, is very frightening to me. And the idea of executing my workouts perfectly, my long runs perfectly, I know that's not going to happen. It's not going to be perfect, but I need to get 90% of that done. And if, if I don't show up to the line feeling prepared, that means that something went wrong during the process. And, and that's scary to me. And it's hard to believe right now when I'm hitting everything perfectly, but get a week closer to the race, get a little bit more stress in your life, start sleeping a little more poorly, start having a harder time waking up and getting in that morning run. Anything can really happen. And so uh, the next month is really about, yeah, I want to make sure that I'm pushing myself, but more importantly, I don't want to burn out to the point where I can't execute anymore and I show up underprepared or not excited to to race. What gets you out out the door in the morning? What gets you really excited to to get your day started? One knowing that I have a hundred miler coming up, but I think more importantly this year than any other year is that I have a massive crew of folks coming with me. My family's coming out, a lot of close friends from San Francisco and I really don't want to let them down either. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are investing a lot of time in me and I feel like when I show up to a race with an audience supporting me, and it's not just spectating, crewing is a lot more, and crewing at 100 milers is a lot more than even showing up to a marathon. 
I don't take that for granted and I respect their time and I want to give it my best to, to show them what's possible. Um, and I have a lot of unfinished business, so that, that makes it easy to think about. And, uh, especially when you see other athletes in the sport really nailing it, you know, they're going to be fit at the start line. It, it definitely inspires you to do a little bit more because you're like, I wonder what my competitor is doing today. Probably an extra interval. Let's, let's get after it. Um, or, or, uh, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're napping instead of podcasting. Perhaps maybe this was a bad decision. Maybe they're out on the trails right now. Maybe maybe they're putting in work while you're sitting here. Um, how do you feel about balance? I think it's important, but it depends on how you define it for yourself. Like I said, almost everything I'm doing right now is somewhat related to running, but I am also finding some time to be social. I think while this is my career right now, I still want to make sure that I'm enjoying it. I chose to do this and I left an office job not to chase money. I'll actually lose quite a bit <laughs> of compensation, but because... I loved the sport and if I'm not loving it or it's impacting other aspects of my life, then it no longer is worth it. And yeah, maybe I'll be a little bit sharper if I don't have three beers on a Friday afternoon, a happy hour. And yeah, maybe I shouldn't stay out till 11 at a crazy baptism playing charades with the family. But uh, I think there are important, it's important to step back and realize it's just running Yeah, and if I'm not a happy individual, then I'm not going to be able to execute anything on the trails and sacrificing a little bit of sleep, a little bit of focus uh, is certainly worth it. And uh, I for fortunately never feel guilt associated with doing those other things. And I think that's very important if you're doing them, but every time you do them, it makes you feel worse about yourself and regret it. Then, then that's not balance for sure. Um, do you do any mental training or reading or, or listening to, podcasts about um mental conditioning no in short no uh, all right i i think the amount of time that i spend on a treadmill is mental conditioning <laughs> enough uh, once you hit that three hour mark on a treadmill i feel like that's that takes about as much will and determination as uh, you run on treadmills here in boulder last monday I feel like that should be an offense in this town last monday i think i put in 60 miles 60 miles last week on a treadmill. So wow. had a 50K on Monday uh, because it was raining and cold and wasn't super inspired to get outside and certainly wasn't going to be able to get to the trails. I knew this was the only way I was going to get it done and uh, felt really determined that day and surprisingly went by pretty quickly. But yeah, you can survive even an hour on the treadmill. I feel like that's uh, that's more strength and willpower than pretty much anything. What did you What did you do to, to make that 50K go? Watched a lot of ESPN. I learned a lot about the, you see top ten uh, you the know, Lakers a dozen yeah. times. Watched the same top ten highlights at least it didn't change. two times. Did not change. I was really hoping to catch Jeopardy because I really want to watch this guy. Yeah, he seems to be crushing and it. And he's on the streak, but I always seem to miss the the timing for that. But cool. Where can people find you on social media? Chris Mako. I think I'm one of the few Chris Makos on social media. M O C K O. Um, I think YouTube's probably the best place to start Instagram and Twitter. 
I'm active, but I feel like YouTube is where I invest the majority of my time. So the Mako show is where you want to go for that. And I uh, would love a couple new subscribers. There we go. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time and uh, we'll see you out there. Thank you very much. Take care, folks. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next week on For the Long Run. And in the meantime, happy trails. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too.